Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. I don't know if it's just me, but I have this thing about brown and gray kind of fishes. I, I've talked about this before, and it always catches an empathetic ear from some geek, some fish geek that is, somewhere, who agrees with my less than chromatically brilliant aesthetic choices. And I try to figure out what it is about the somewhat chromatically challenged fishes that I love so much. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I can appreciate the incredible colors of a fancy beta, brilliantly covered colored tetra, beautiful discus, a fancy live bear, ambuna, whatever. It's just that when I'm selecting fishes for my aquariums, I tend to go after the more subtly colored ones for the bulk of the fish population in a given aquarium. Sure, I'll often put in a fish or two that has a pop of color in it for, I guess, for effect or something. However, the majority of the fishes in my tank are, or my tanks, excuse me, are subtly attractive or just subtle, as one of my friends tells me. For example, the stars in my Keras and Heavy Office tank that you see so much lately around here are Pristella, one of the classic tetras, not particularly flashy. Uh, another one that you see in a lot of my tanks are the sailfin tetras, Canucus spirillus. Uh, nice, but not the kinds of fishes that you're going to go catch a glance as they swim by and yell, wow, those are crazy. I mean, that's it's not that. Rather, these are the kind of fishes that have their own, I don't know, quiet charm. They blend nicely into their surroundings. They have interesting color patterns and sort of hold your attention a bit longer than, say, I don't know, a school of bright, flashy cardinal tetras. Now, for a pop in color, I always seem to choose a fish that is indeed colorful, but maybe one that wouldn't be your first choice to blow people's mind. Like, for example, the flame tetra, or, or the orange flame tetra, Hyphosobricon flamius, a domesticated variant of that fish, that's a good one. If I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me what those fishes were in my tank, I wouldn't have to sling botanicals for a living, trust me. There's something to be said for bright, but not outrageous fishes in a natural setting. I remember when I was a kid, my dream tanks in my mind always had black gravel and a huge school of cardinal or neon tetras in them. I I don't know what it was. I think it was about contrast. I still like that look, the contrast, as I've gotten older and more experienced as an Aquarius, although my substrates now tend to be brown and earthy and botanical and leaf-laden. I found that I tend to favor more subtle fishes that sort of blend in harmoniously with their natural environment. It makes sense. In the Botanical Method Aquarium, it's great to have a little pop of color against those deep, rich colors of leaves and pods and wood and all that stuff, and of course, the tinted water. However, one of the surprising things I've discovered is that the more subtle fishes tend to pop more in tanks with tinted water or black water tanks or whatever you want to call them. Now, surprising not in that they display better colors, the environmental conditions we create obviously assist in that, but surprising in that they tend to catch your eyes more than I'd expected. Even the more cryptically colored and shaped fishes do this. In fact, they're somewhat more engaging in this setting than the more obvious brightly colored fishes, in my opinion. There's something I enjoy about being able to take in the whole picture of an aquarium and not to have any one element really make a huge impression on you. Rather, it's nice to have the entire aquarium provide a sort of vibe and you take on a little journey of discovery. It's kind of cool. In my opinion, the very best aquariums, marine, freshwater, brackish, whatever, keep you engaged for a long time, as if strolling in the garden, discovering the little surprises along the way. The best aquariums I've ever seen don't stand out because of one element, 
Rather, it's a combination of things working together, creating an intricate collage of color and texture and structure. Regardless of what the primary focus of the aquarium is, fish, plants, botanicals, whatever, it's the combination of elements that seems to create the whole impression. For example, uh, some of the blackwater aquariums that we feature on these pages, they're filled with all sorts of botanical elements. Sometimes they're surprising like palm fronds or twigs or leaf litter. Sometimes they're roots. Yet the entire picture is truly greater than the sum of its parts. The fishes tend to become the kinetic element in a well-thought-out display, if you take that mindset. A moving, living component which weaves the whole thing together. Now, I know it's weird me talking about aesthetics first, but let's be honest with you. As much as I'm into the ecology and the function and stuff, I still like to look at a nice tank. And of course, my aesthetic tastes are far different than many of yours, but I do have an aesthetic. And that's where the less vibrant fishes come in, in my opinion. If you had nothing but crazy-ass colored fishes, the tank itself would tend to just be in the background, a supporting player in a cast of characters. By incorporating more subtly beautiful fishes into your aquarium, you've woven the whole thing together, a combination of colorful, interesting elements that form the whole picture, truly greater than the sum of its part. A lot of outstanding aquariums arose from just that, a vision, a dream. It seems no matter how we plan them in our head, they come together in ways that perhaps we never imagined and as they evolve or morph into ever more complex living works of art they grab your attention in different ways and I think that's super important and it all starts with fishes and the selection of fishes and you know it, it kind of brings me back to when I was a young child my father started me with my first fish um, essentially some calls from his pure strain of solid blue delta tail guppies having just turned I think it was like four or five I couldn't care what they were I was just thrilled to have some fish Obviously, as the years went by and my experience with fishes of all types grew, I began to be uh, a bit more of a stickler when it came to the quality of the fishes that I wanted for my collection. I still am. Like every hobbyist, I want the nicest specimens better than, you know, for my collection. However, I'd occasionally would purchase some ugly ducklings in the hope that my better than average care could bring out the best in them. I know a lot of people do this. It's not an uncommon thing with fish geeks, right? Seems like almost every fish geek has a tank or two of factory seconds, you know, fishes which may not be the best example of their species, fishes which may actually have some physiological issues, fishes which, if they were in the wild, may not have made it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all about compassion. I'm the guy who won't crush that wayward spider or a cricket that wanders into the kitchen. But when it comes to fishes, I've tempered my compassion with a dose of reality and an understanding of consequence. I'm not an active breeder of fishes right now, but I know that if I was, I'd be, I guess, pretty ruthless when it comes to culling. I have this issue with poor quality fishes getting into the hobby, as many of you probably do. One of the things I hate the most is that when you purchase a shoal of, say, I don't know, 15 or 20 neon tetras or whatever from the local fish stores, you'll almost always end up with two or three that, upon close scrutiny, have small defects, very subtle, but maybe missing or bent pectoral fins, missing adipose fins, missing gill plates, that kind of stuff. Maybe even a crooked spine. Small defects that perhaps don't harm the fish and render it incapable of survival, but problems that may or may not affect them in later in life. The larger issue, as we all know, is that these lower quality specimens sneak into the gene pool, sometimes spawning and perhaps affecting generations of fishes in a local area. It's very easy to overlook some of these little defects, particularly when you're purchasing small, you know, shoaling or schooling fishes like cardinal tetras, danios, and, you know, other things like that. We all have to be vigilant about this. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
It seems obvious, but it is kind of hard to tell in the chaos and activity of the store that the Leopard Daniel that you're selecting had an oddly tilted caudal peduncle, or that the Rasbora was missing a section of its left gill cover. But these things can't be allowed when we breed them, intentionally or otherwise, because the long-term quality of the species in captivity can be affected. And quite honestly, in recent years, I've noticed a lower quality of fishes coming to the market, particularly mass-bred species, slipping through the cracks and getting into retail stores and often ending up in hobbyist aquariums. Now, again, this is not meant to be an indictment of every fish farming operation out there or an allegation that wholesalers or the local fish store is doing a bad job or whatever. However, it is meant to give a sort of uh, occasional reminder that quality control should start with the fish farmers and the process needs to be continued at the wholesale, retail, and hobby levels. At every stage, buyers can and should vote with their pocketbooks and let the suppliers know that 27 of the 250 neons they purchased had subtle but significant defects. Yeah, it's often difficult to catch the bad apples when you're, you know, dealing with thousands of fishes. I know I've operated a large-scale, you know, livestock facility in the past, and I worked in a number of aquarium-related businesses over the decades. I totally get that. However, it's critical in my opinion. Captive bred fishes are a vital part of the industry and will be forever. However, with the hobby growing rapidly and demand growing, it's incumbent upon us all, fish farmers, wholesalers, local fish store owners, employees, and hobbyists to carefully scrutinize every fish we purchase and simply offer feedback along the chain. Look, I'm no geneticist, and I certainly am not an authority on quality control in an industrial setting, but it seems to me that the quality of the fishes that we sell or that we purchase is so much more important than simply meeting a purchase order commitment. Commoditizing fishes may look great on a spreadsheet, but it simply doesn't make sense from a long-term viability standpoint. And quite frankly, I think our aquarium fishes need to cost more. Yeah, you heard me. We need to put a greater value on them, particularly wild collected fishes, as this supports those in the countries of origin who earn a livelihood collecting our fishes rather than contributing to deforestation, and other ecologically unsound activities that would be more attractive if fishing for ornamentals wasn't an option. That's the beauty of, a, of an organization like Project Piaba. Please support them and their efforts to mount a sustainable fishery operation in South America. It's a privilege to have access to fishes and a price needs to reflect this at every level. And honestly, even the larger commercial facilities should, I believe, charge more. The local fish store should charge more. I know people are thinking I'm absolutely freaking nuts right now, but think about it. It better reflects the truly precious nature of the animals that we keep. Would you buy a $35 puppy? I don't think so. It says something. I realize that this idea won't make me popular with some hobbyists, but it's how I feel. I understand it's already an expensive hobby, but it's more expensive in the long run to devaluate and commoditize fishes. And quite frankly, I'd like to see even more fish stores and even wholesale operations getting behind basement breeders and small boutique fish producers to further enhance quality and selection. Small-scale breeders will charge more, as they should, to reflect the expensive realities of small-scale careful fish breeding, just like we see with small-batch food producers, coffee roasters, craft beer brewers, you know, etc. The, the ecosystem around tropical fish production can and should reflect an even greater commitment to quality, value, and for that matter, sustainable pricing. We as a hobby need to look beyond just the initial price of the fish at the local fish store. We need to really understand, as we probably already do, and perhaps don't care to vocalize, that the quality of our fishes has a price. 
and that lack of quality has an even greater price. We should make a choice. It's long run versus short run, in my opinion. Sure, it's great to be able to get thousands of really cheap apistos or whatever into the market. Lots of hobbyists could get them, you know, that'd be really cool, right? However, in the long run, flooding the market with cheap, lower quality fishes with a higher mortality and defect rate does nothing to advance the hobby long term or to add value to the practice of collecting, breeding, and distributing them. We just have to be honest with ourselves and make what, for a lot of us, is a tough call, accepting the fact that more expensive animals will lead to a brighter and better future long term. Again, this is not an indictment of large-scale fish farming, wild collection, or the way fishes are sold. It is, however, a call for all of us as consumers and hobbyists to simply step back periodically and look at the bigger picture. Will paying an extra dollar or euro or whatever your local currency may be make or break your decision to stay in the hobby? Well, only you can answer that. But if enough people say, yeah, it's not so bad, what a difference that would make, like globally. Not only now, but far into the future for our children and for the children of those who work you know, so hard to collect, propagate, and distribute the fishes that we love so much. And of course, for the irreplaceable habitats worldwide that are affected by our actions. And for generations yet to be born who will continue to enjoy the wonder and diversities of nature, which we will have all done our part to treasure and protect. Treasure your fishes. Treasure your hobby. Treasure your fellow humans, for that matter. We all know how to do this, but it can't hurt to reflect upon it every once in a while. Stay bold. Stay interested. Stay compassionate. Stay involved. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tannin.